Macrocast, the sound of the economic world, with Gilles Moeck, AXA Group Chief Economist. Post-lockdown GDP trajectories will depend on the net effect of the pandemic's collateral damage on jobs and investment on the one hand, and consumers spending their forced savings on the other. Government can influence the net outcome by reassuring of the continuation of policy support. Euro-area member states are not equal in their capacity to deliver this, though. This calls for stronger solidarity, which is for now elusive. The ECB remains on the hook. It will have to raise its firepower further. To shed the light on this, for you, I will have the support of Apolline Menu. She is a Eurozone economist at AXA Investment Managers. And as we do every Monday, towards the end of this podcast, we will draw your attention to the economic events that will shape up the coming day. Thank you very much for being here. It's Monday. April the 27th, I am Gilles Moeck, and you are listening to Macrocast. Dealing with the pandemic has revealed three interconnected asymmetries. First, the level of severity of lockdowns has varied a lot across countries, which is consistent with different magnitudes in the contraction in GDP in the first half of the year. Second, the policy capacity to mitigate the impact of such recession is also quite different at the national level. Third, Social groups are not equal when hit by COVID-19. This will shape the design of economic policies during the recovery phase and beyond, if anything, because any shift towards fiscal austerity will need to be delayed by probably several years. In the European context, all this explains why cross-country transfers are necessary, but also why agreeing on them may be very difficult, since the perception of the crisis varies and citizens of different member states may take different views on the quantum of sacrifices they are ready to take, for instance, in terms of joint liabilities through a debt mutualization process. It doesn't help that it is often the same countries which have had the mildest lockdowns, for instance Germany, which are also those with the widest policy space, which they are using to the full, and a political culture which is reluctant to give way to transfer union. To help us understand these disparities within the European Union, it is time to invite ourselves into the confinement of Apolline Menu. Hello, Apolline. How are you? And can you tell us a bit about your confinement setup? Hello, Gilles. I'm very well, thank you. Eurozone keeping me busy and uh, cooking as well, actually. So, all good. Perfect. Sounds great. Uh, well, thank you very much for, for being with us uh, and glad to know you're, you're okay. Let's begin with the beginning. Uh, as far as the lockdown is concerned, now that we have several weeks of insight, are all countries in the same situation? No, Gilles. Uh, Germany seems so far to be doing better than the others. First, the lockdown has been less severe here. Uh, in Italy and Spain, at some time in March or beginning of April, all non-essential activities were banned. These countries were in economic hibernation. It has never been the case in Germany where there have been no mandatory closure of factories or other workplaces. And the second point is that Germany has now started to loosen restrictions, with small shops reopening last week, while this won't be the case before mid-May in France or Spain. Real-time data are reflecting this divergence quite well, actually. Electricity consumption compared to the same period last year has tumbled by almost 40% in Italy versus a 15% decline in Germany. Google Community Mobility Reports, which track movement trends over time, show that mobility to retail and recreation locations has fallen by 55% compared to baseline in Germany, 
a much milder drop than the 89% recorded in Spain. So we are facing an exogenous shock, but we also see an heterogeneous economic impact across countries, with Germany faring better. Okay, that's very clear indeed. Um, and can we see similar asymmetries in terms of, of policy response to the crisis? Yes, unfortunately, yes. Uh, Germany is making full use of its larger policy space than the others and is coming up with a very big and, and comprehensive fiscal support. So at the end of March, uh, the German government adopted a supplementary budget worth 4.6% of GDP, while liquidity and guarantee measures add up to almost 40% of GDP. And even last week, Germany upgraded further its fiscal response by 10 billion euro, uh, raising the replacement rate for workers in the short-time working scheme and temporarily cutting the VAT rates for bar and restaurants from July 1st, a targeted measure to, to support the recovery. Meanwhile, fiscal stimulus in Spain is standing for now at merely 1.4% of GDP, with guarantees at around like 10% of GDP. And Italy spent most of April discussing another cure decree that should push fiscal support to a bit more than 2.5% of GDP, both very pale in comparison to Germany. We could be faced with internalized financial constraints uh, in the more fragile countries, and by that I mean a willingness to avoid taking risk with the public debt when sustainability conditions are already precarious. Another non-exclusive reason is that some plans may have been delayed in the hope of a more significant fiscal response at the European level. If we are in the same storm, we are definitely not in the same boat. Well, thank you very much, Apolline, for your input. It was very nice to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Gilles. There is a third asymmetry that we have not yet mentioned, perhaps more difficult to grasp and quantify, but essential in understanding the context that surrounds us. Social groups are not equal in the face of the shock. A disciplinarian view of such a state of affairs would consider that while a large stimulus is warranted in the short run to deal with the worst of the pandemic shock, the most fragile member states could still make full use of current ECB support, which is normally available until the end of the year, before returning to a more austere fiscal management in 2021. If markets then are not willing to give them the benefit of the doubt, they could still tap the emergency support schemes already available in the year area, entailing conditionality, macro conditionality, against loans at concessionary rates from the European stability mechanism. We think such approach cannot be pursued in practice because of the social and political conditions post-pandemic. Once again, we're going to use French data, uh, since the statistical apparatus there has remained very efficient in this lockdown, and I'm not saying that because I used to work for INSEE, uh, but we think that the main features um, found in France would actually be found across Europe. Uh, the Labour Ministry in France produced a very interesting snapshot of the status of French employees at the end of March. Four nearly equal groups emerged. One quarter was working on-site, that is, you know, normally. Another quarter was working from home. A third quarter was under you know, in-work unemployment benefits, uh, furloughed for our Anglo-Saxon readers. And the rest uh, was on holiday or in sick leave. The breakdown by sector was quite telling. Most employees in the communication and the financial industries were working from home. Most employees in hospitality, and surprisingly, or in construction, 
were furloughed. European in-work unemployment benefits, chômage partiel in France, Kurzarbeit uh, in Germany, are generous, but their replacement rate usually stands at about 80% only. Those employees remain attached to their companies, which is a good thing when thinking about the recovery, but they're still net losers financially. Workers who continue to work on site did not lose anything financially, but their risk exposure has been high. In very broad terms, on average, workers employed in relatively high-pay industries working from home lost less than those employed in relatively low-pay sectors and are not taking the same sanitary risk as those in the key sectors which had to stay open. Again, we think this is not specific to France, but a common feature across advanced economies. This will have, we think, uh, a very significant impact on fiscal policy long after the lockdown is over. Even if one ignores the equity imperative, there is going to be a sound macroeconomic reason to make those who have been the net losers of the crisis whole. For instance, by increasing social transfers after the pandemic is resolved. Indeed, their savings ratio is usually low. Replacing their lost income would have a powerful impact on aggregate consumption, while the savings ratio of those at the upper end of the wage scale is high, and we would not be surprised if a large share of their forced saving accumulated during the lockdown morphs into precautionary saving, impairing the spending catch-up. Looking ahead, workers at the bottom of the income scale are often more dependent on public services and social transfers than the average. Beyond the likely permanent rise in socialized healthcare spending triggered by the pandemic, it will be particularly delicate for any government to embark on a program of tough rollback on public spending after the current shock. The other option, of course, would be to embark in a correction of the current rise in public deficits by hiking the restributive income tax significantly, drawing on the equity imperative. We already mentioned in Macrocast the short-lived proposal by the Democratic Party in Italy to implement a specific COVID tax on those with income above €80,000. However, the share of the progressive income tax in total government income is small. It's roughly a quarter of the total in the EU, relative to proportional tax such as the AT or payroll tax. Only an extremely painful rise in income tax rates would be commensurate with the deficits currently being accumulated. Beyond the depressing macro effect of pronouncing tax hikes immediately after the end of the worst recession since World War II, the political equation will be particularly difficult to solve now. Non-populist governments may lose the middle-class vote on which they have become very dependent. However, little is done to avoid growing divergence across the euro area. There is thus a very significant risk that what started as a symmetric shock affecting all the euro area member states at the same time morphs into lasting divergence. There are ways to address this. In our view, this would take a wide-ranging fiscal transfer system across member states, beyond the ESM's framework, to recreate a level playing field once the ECB is done with its emergency program. Unfortunately, the EU Council meeting last week was short and inconclusive. The main issue, how to structure such recovery fund, is still too controversial, and decisions were postponed to another meeting on May the 6th, which may not even actually be uh, more fruitful. President Macron in his press conference at the end of the council said the main issue, unsurprisingly, is on the debate on grants, that is transfers from the proceeds of debt issuance at the EU level, versus loans, which would remain on the member state's debt. Yes, there are disagreements. There are states whose deep psychology, whose political constraints justify very hard positions. 
I believe that all this must be built up in discussion, and the next few days, the next few weeks will be very important. President Macron sided clearly with Italy and Spain as he stated that France advocates grants, a large quantum of 5 to 10% of GDP, and quick implementation. But his tone was much milder than his interview with the Financial Times a week earlier. He probably does not want to burn bridges with the northern states and add to any general sense of distrust in EU institutions. But there is no breakthrough in sight. This leaves a lot of pressure on the ECB, which, as often, is the only institution with some real firepower at the ready and quick decision-making capacity. The ECB meets this Thursday, 30th April. The Governing Council, in our view, will need to come up with something to show the euro area can still count on a powerful policy backstop. At least they need to be more generous and explicit on the treatment of fallen angel. Last week, they went halfway. At an unscheduled meeting last Wednesday, the ECB decided to grandfather investment-grade assets, which would be downgraded, down to a minimum of double B, as still eligible as collateral for bank refinancing. But the market has increasingly shifted to considering not just the quality of the assets the ECB is purchasing, but also the quantum. Indeed, that the Italian sovereign spread could significantly widen at the beginning of last week, although the ECB is buying securities via, via the PPP at a rate of about 20 billion euros per week, is concerning. The figure of 750 billion euros on top of traditional quantitative easing for PEPP looks massive at first glance. But some quick calculations show that this might not be the case when it comes to Italy. We do not expect such a hard announcement this week already, but we would expect Christine Lagarde in her Q&A to sound open to this, that is, an increase in the total size of PEPP. Even if Italy has retained its investment grade status last Friday, its debt sustainability is precarious. More is needed than it helped. Marco voleva andarsene lontano, qualcuno li ha visti tornare tenendosi per mano. This week's focus. Well, many things to come this week, as usual, but how could we fail to pay priority attention to the publication of GDP for the first quarter? This will happen on Wednesday for the United States and on Thursday for the Eurozone. Thank you very much for listening to us. If you want to read us to go further, the Macrocast newsletter is available on the AXA EM website. The link is in the description. We'll be there next week, and I hope you will too. Until then, have a great week. Macrocast, the sound of the economic world. Available every Monday on your podcast app.